Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So good evening. Um, Welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas lecture. Welcome to the University of Sydney Nano Institute, known as Sydney Nano. My name is Professor Ben Eggleton. I'm the director of Sydney Nano, one of the University of Sydney's flagship multidisciplinary institutes. Apologies for my sniffing. I've had a cold, but I'm mostly over it. So this is going to be an extraordinary hour and a half. We are privileged to be hosting uh, two distinguished scholars. Um, So what I want to do in the next few minutes is just talk you through a bit of background and the format for this evening. So as we know, we have had the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century and the Digital Revolution of the 20th century, and now we are at the beginning of the nanoscale revolution where nanoscience and technology have opened up our access to the very smallest scales of matter, one nanometer, which is one billionth of a meter, or roughly the size of 10 atoms in a row. The human hair is 100 microns, which means you can fit literally 100,000 nanometers across the thickness of one human hair. Okay, headquartered in the University of Sydney Nanoscience Hub, which we stand in today, which is the state-of-the-art building designed for nanoscience, $150 million of taxpayers' money, of University of Sydney money. Thank you very much for your contributions as taxpayers. We appreciate that. The Institute was founded in 2016 to bring together expertise across our university and beyond to tackle some of the most challenging problems that humanity faces. Imagine if we could use nanorobotics to detect and treat illness in the body, or if we could use nanomaterials to create sustainable energy and revolutionary fuels, or to build quantum computers that can design new materials that have unprecedented properties. Through multidisciplinary research in nanoscale science and technology, we're going to transform our economy, society, and everyday life. And this event celebrates the type of multidisciplinary research that we aspire for. So tonight, we are bringing together an amazing physicist, Professor Martin Wegner, who has pioneered 3D nanoprinting with a rock star biomedical engineering professor, Professor Hala Zrikat, who is at the University of Sydney. Now, in the old days, Physicists and biologists didn't really talk to each other. In fact, I don't think we liked each other that much in general, but let's not get bogged down on that point. In the 21st century, and I'm glad I've got a fan here in the front row. In the 21st century, we approach things very differently. And the traditional disciplinary boundaries that have been in place for hundreds of years have been removed. And we need a truly multidisciplinary approach to tackle some of the most significant, the grand challenges facing humanity. So let me introduce Martin and Hala and their expertise very briefly. So Professor Martin Wegner from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany is one of the top nanotechnology researchers in the world. He is famous, distinguished scholar for many seminal achievements, and it is a privilege to host him here today. He is the director of the Institute of Nanotechnology at Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, which is known as KIT. He was the coordinator of the DFG Center for Functional Nanostructures at KIT from 2001 to 2014, and has been a spokesperson for the cluster of excellence in 3D matter made to order since 2018. 
His research interests comprise ultrafast optics, nonlinear optics, lithography, photonic crystals, optical, mechanical, electronic, and even the thermodynamic metamaterials and transformational physics. He's going to tease out some of those ideas in the next uh, 45 minutes. <laughs> Professor Hullers Rikert is, as I said, a rock star researcher and one of the best in the field, certainly one of the best, if not the best in Australia. We're very proud of her at this institution. She is a professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Sydney and both a National Health and Medical Research Council senior research fellow and a fellow of international orthopedic research of the i International College of Fellows, director of the Australian Research Training Centre of Innovation Bioengineering and has received numerous awards for her research. Noteworthy in particular, Professor Zarikat was named New South Wales Premier's Women of the Year in 2018. So again, very proud to um, say that Hala is a colleague of mine at the University of Sydney. Now the format of the evening, um, slightly different to other public events that you might have attended. We will um, ask Professor Martin Wegner to present his keynote address. That will be roughly 40 minutes. At the end of that keynote address, Professor Secret will interview Professor Wegner for about 25 minutes. This will be a conversation. And this will tease out some of the big ideas. So um, this will allow us to explore in more detail with some more nuance, some of these very advanced concepts. Um, so without further ado, let me um, invite Professor Wegner to the podium. And I ask you to please join me in welcoming Professor Martin Wegner to the stage to present his keynote address. Martin. Yeah, good evening. Thank you very much, Ben, for this kind introduction and for the invitation to come here. It's my opportunity to speak about 3D additive manufacturing and an opportunity for you to listen to my charming German accent for more than an hour or so. Uh, 3D additive manufacturing is also known as 3D printing, and I'm going to use that word. And it's a mega trend, and there's also a lot of hype about it. Um, just a while ago, PricewaterhouseCoopers, this consulting firm, uh, consulted all kinds of companies and they came to the conclusion that the estimate is that in about 10 years' time, 10% of all manufactured goods will involve some sort of 3D printing, which would be a humongous market, really. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I stumbled across a paper in Science uh, speaking about 3D printed airplane wings. The entire airplane wing out of one part being 3D printed, where reliability is obviously quite an issue. They are quite obscure things, like 3D printed houses that have been made in China out of concrete. And they are also very useful things like 3D printed hip replacements that has been in the medical application for about 10 years by now. And it also reminds me to make two points that are crucial for 3D printing. Number one is you can individualize and customize goods, and that's very obvious for this example because you don't want to have just some hip replacement. You want to have one that fits you and suits you. And number two, the shapes and topologies can be so complicated that it's not easy and sometimes even impossible to machine or drill a hip replacement out of a block of metal or out of titanium. 
So you can only do this with 3D printing in some cases. 3D printed shoes go in the same direction. They're not a big thing yet, but Adidas introduced 3D printed shoe soles just two years ago or so. And again, the kick is that you can customize them, you can individualize them. In fact, they contain artificial materials that I will mention at the end that are called meta-materials already. So I'm wait for that. To come. There are obscure things like 3D printed food, 3D printed organs you hear about. Don't expect them to be in the hospital in the next 10 years, though, I would say. And again, a good case for 3D printing are 3D printed teeth. Again, you don't want a cylindrical tooth in your mouth, at least I do not want that. You want something that fits to you and that is specifically made for you. But I'm going to be speaking about things that are a lot smaller than that, that are about a factor of thousands smaller than what you need for 3D printing teeth also. So before I do that, let me try to bring this into perspective and jump back five or six hundred years and then go 400 years into the future and then maybe speak about the present. Because there was already a big revolution associated with printing with uh, the work of Johannes Gutenberg. Um, people could print things before Gutenberg. They engraved things into a wooden stock and they printed the Bible or the Bible or the Bible because they couldn't really make different things quickly. And the advance of movable type, these letters you can exchange, was exactly the same that I pointed out earlier on. You can make different things quickly. So you could print the Bible again if you wanted to, but then in the afternoon you could print some political flyer, next day some advertisement or whatever. It became flexible and the revolution for society was really that made information available to many. And that uh, keeps on going until today. And in a way, 3D printing is about converting information, converting ideas, or converting digital blueprints in the form of some file into hardware. And this comes maybe in the most extreme form in the 24th century. And I stole this picture from Star Trek. They call it the replicator. And I'm not quite sure about the physics of this device. And it's a little bit obscure. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you can 3D print, as I would say, anything with this device. And it reminds me to say that this is a fairly small device for doing all that. And that's the spirit of many of the 3D printing devices that, that I will talk about and that you see. We're not talking about huge cleaning facilities where dozens of scientists work for months and months. They have been trained for years and then after some hard work, at the end of the day, they come out with some super sophisticated device. The idea is rather to have really tabletop instrumentation like your laser printer at home by which you print photos or your inkjet printer, depending on what you have, same size, no extreme things like high background, high voltages or something like that. Really instrumentation that at the end of the day, everybody could use. But let me speak about maybe about the present. And there's one form of 3D printing I'm going to emphasize, and it's illustrated here. So what we do is we take lasers with short pulses, femtosecond laser pulses, and we focus them very, very tightly in three-dimensional space to nearly a point. And then in this point, by a mechanism called two-photon absorption that I will explain in just a second, we concentrate the energy, and then a chemical reaction is induced. 
This changes the material very often, not always, but very often. We start with some liquid, a so-called monomer, and then the laser induces a reaction that brings this liquid into a solid state. It polymerizes, it cross-links. Then we scan in three dimensions. It's like writing with a pen of light. And at the end of the day, we wash out the still liquid material and get what we have programmed. As simple as that, I find it amazing that I spent 20 years of my life working with this technology, but that's the basic idea. You just write with light whatever you want to do. To be a bit more specific, if you care about some numbers, let me show you these images. The left-hand side is pretty complicated. These are surfaces of equal excitation inside of that liquid I was talking about. If you find that too complicated to look at, you may want to look at this cut through the focal volume. It's just a very high-end lens that we are using here. We are also using deep red light at around 800 nanometers wavelength, and that's what these uh, figures are made for. And here you see that spot, and what matters at the end of the day is what kind of line width and what kind of resolution do we get. And to understand this, there's a very simple model I want to explain to you. It's called the threshold model. And what it means is that if a certain region in space has seen sufficient excitation by the light, it has cross-linked, it has solidified sufficiently, then it is not washed out in the developer. Whereas those regions that have seen too little light here on the left or on the right, they are eventually washed out in the developer bar. So it's basically digitalizing, digitizing uh, this profile, and what we get is something that we call in the jargon a voxel, that's the word I'm going to be using. It's quite an analogy to the pixel, the picture element, or photographs or so that they're printing, just that this is the volume element, the voxel. I haven't invented that word, but it's a common word. It's kind of the smallest Lego block that we have to build up matter in three dimensions. So under these conditions, you would get 230 nanometers line width here, but you don't have to stop here. The magic is if we attenuate the laser, it's getting better and better. And if you approach with the tip of that laser focus the threshold, then you can, in principle, get even one nanometer. In reality, you can get down to a little bit below 100 nanometers, which is still amazing because it's about a factor of 10 smaller than the wavelength of light that we are using here which uh, reminds me to say that I learned in school that this is impossible to do things like that. I learned you cannot look at things with a microscope or make things with light that are substantially smaller than the wavelength of light, but this turns out to be simply incorrect. Those kids still learn that in school, at least my daughters have. Um, I mentioned that uh, two-photon absorption is something very, very important for us, and I will explain this to you. This process was first discussed theoretically a long, long time ago by Marie Gerbert Meyer. She came from Poland and then did her PhD thesis in Germany with Max Born, the famous physicist, on the theory of two-photon absorption, which basically means you have to take together two quanta of light to excite a molecule, and with this excitation, the uh, chemical reaction I talked about um, gets started. Later, she got the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, sadly enough, she was the second woman who got the Nobel Prize in Physics, and only last year we had the third woman in all the history of mankind getting the Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, not so many, really. 
And uh, I want to show you a couple of numbers. This is the only view graph full of numbers, but I find this important. So what are the kind of lasers we are talking about? Are these gigantic lasers? No, they're not. They typically have powers that are on the order of 10 milliwatts. So to calibrate you, I'm guessing this laser may have 2 milliwatts. If you get some of these illegal laser pointers, they also have 10 milliwatts or so. So this is not a lot, um, 10 milliwatts of light. But then we do two things. We concentrate this power in time by using fairly short laser pulses on the order of 100 femtoseconds. And we concentrate the light in a small spot, as I showed you earlier on. We do this very often, 100 million times per second. And if you take all these numbers, you get to the intensity, that is the power per unit area, uh, that is about a terawatt per centimeter squared, or 10 to the 12 watts per centimeter squared. These numbers may not mean much to you, so let's do a comparison. If you take a state-of-the-art nuclear power plant, that generates on the order of 1 gigawatt, 10 to the 9 watts of power. If you take a thousand of these nuclear power plants, put their power together, and concentrate that on an area corresponding to your thumbnail, that's this number. That would hurt. <laughs> a lot. Fortunately, we're doing this only for a very short time and in a very small space, but we do this with this very moderate power of order 10 milliwatt. It's really an amazing process. And it's important because then you take this number and you multiply it with something that Maria Gottmeier came up with. That's the typical number for two photon absorption in molecules. I can do this in my head. This will mean that you get an effective area of the molecule responding to this two-photon absorption of about 10 to the minus 19 square centimeter. This sounds like an awfully small number, but it's getting in the right ballpark. If you look at the molecules that give rise to this blue color on my shirt, they would have an effective cross-section of about 10 to the minus 15 centimeters square. So it's getting in the same scale of ordinary absorption of light because we have concentrated light in space and in time so much. And sometimes things in science take some time. You cannot always expect results in five years. So this is a long story. Marika Bertmeier published her work in 1931. And then it took 13 years before the first experimental demonstration of this process was shown by Wolfgang Kaiser at Bell Labs. Very shortly after the invention of the laser, it takes lasers to make this process important. It took another almost 30 years until somebody did something really useful with two-photon absorption that, that is used in the life sciences or biology for microscopy. Then it took another seven years until the first demonstration of two-photon 3D printing was shown by Soshi Maru, um, who is now a professor at Yokohama University in Japan and uh, is also a friend uh, in this sense. I want to emphasize this once again, two-photon absorption is not some gimmick on the side that helps us a little bit. The things I'm going to be speaking about are impossible without this process. Why is that? Because we have this focus that concentrates the light in the spot, but you also have these tails, and these tails are killer. In the tails, the intensity may only be 1% of the peak intensity, but then you write over many spots, and if you add up 100 times 1%, you get 100%. It's a big effect. What this two-photon absorption does is effectively squares the intensity, so this 1% tail becomes a 10 to the minus 4 tail, and then you can add up over 100 exposures, and it's still a small effect. 
That's demonstrated here in this computer animation. Here we simulate the writing of a little platelet. And if you use full photon absorption, you actually get a platelet with some smearing out at the edges. But if you use ordinary one photon absorption, which is what gives rise to the color of this type here, then you get a total distortion of this pattern. It's getting worse and worse as we write bigger structures uh, with finer feature sizes. At the end, you just get a blob of material without any structure at all. So two-photon absorption or three or four-photon absorption is the magic of what I'm talking about. You should be aware that I'm biased. Um, about 12 years ago, we founded a company based on this technology, and um, it's Nanostripe. Um, but we did this uh, because I was excited then already. At the time, people were not so excited yet, to be honest. Many people told me, Martin, don't do this. This is going to be a waste of time. You're going to waste your money. That has changed a little bit. But keep in mind that I'm a bit biased uh, when speaking about these things. I mentioned line width. If you are a careful person, you want to uh, differentiate line width from the so-called resolution, by which I mean that is the smallest spacing between adjacent lines you can get. And that's what matters if you want to write complicated structures. It's not all about the language. And there is a limit. I mean, illustrate that. So not all you learned in school, perhaps, about optics was incorrect. So if we attenuate our laser a little bit further here, again, it's fundamentally no problem to get even 50 nanometer feature size. But now we want to have a second dot here, a second voxel or second line whatever you want, and I bring this closer and closer to the first exposure that we had. I'm showing on the right-hand side, by the blue curve, the sum of these two exposures. And you see one issue coming up, that this uh, valley between the two maxima is filling up, and it's filling up at some point such that it disappears. And at this point, you can no longer differentiate these two lines, you just get one fatter line. And this is done uh, in our parameters here, a quarter of the wavelength, roughly, or only 200 nanometers. So here, the diffraction limit and optics limit appears, but even that has fallen in the last years. You may have heard that Stefan Hell and Arne Götting got the Nobel Prize in chemistry, strangely enough, for the invention of so-called stem microscopy, take it as a nickname, it's called, it stands for stimulated emission depletion microscopy. Let me tell you the trick very briefly. So far I spoke about one laser, one color, that initiates a certain chemical reaction. What you need next is you need a second color, it's actually green in many instances, that allows us to switch off the reaction. We need an on switch and an off switch. And if you have that, you can do magic things that I illustrated here. We're going to be using one very special laser focus, kind of as a mask, shown by this green paper here. And the idea is that we have a fat brush, but if we put this appropriate mask in the middle, you can write a much finer line than your brushes. And that's the idea, that's basically the idea we got the Nobel Prize for, except that the laser foci that we are using look a little bit more fancy. We have to do this in three dimensions. So here you have a realistic, this is actually a measurement of the laser focus as it really looks like. And then we have this awkward focus that has a, a minimum and a zero of the brightness of light in the middle. And what this means is that all of these regions are going to eat away the excited molecules, and the only spot that is left is right at the middle, and if you go through the mathematics, there's no limit anymore for how fine you can get with light. The limit is no longer the wavelength that we have been using this, even though I'm not going to emphasize that in, in this talk. 
So what reaction I often get is, okay, so you use a laser to kind of write with a pen in three dimensions. That's a serial, that's a sequential process. So it's going to be very slow, right? Um, well, that depends on what you call slow or fast. Let me try to put this in perspective. Before I open up this horribly full graph, because all the competition is in there, let me tell you that this direction here is going finer. Finer features go to the right, but here you have the voxel size in microns, so this goes up to millimeters here, one centimeter. That's where we're going to stop. This end is 100 nanometers or so. So this is a good direction. You want to go to the right-hand side, and you want to do it fast. So you really want to be up here, Fine and fast, you do not want to be down here, to be clear. This spans quite a range here, to point that out. This is eight orders of magnitude. There's a factor of 100 million difference from here to here. And this spans five orders of magnitude, a factor of 100,000 from the left to the right. Let me open this up. These are all kinds of different technologies. The technology I talked about is uh, shown here by this green blob. There are many different versions of it. That's why there are so many uh, blobs here. There's quite some variation. Some people are going to do it very good. Some are fairly slow, I would say here. And then you have other technologies. I, I cannot go through all of them, but this you may know. This is inkjet printing. It's basically the same idea as your color inkjet printer at home, if you have one. But it's extruding a material through a small nozzle. And that is fairly fast. These are the best instruments you could buy in 2017 here. And they print about a couple of million of these voxels per second. That's the speed. But if you look down, you're limited here to voxel sizes between 10 microns and 100 microns. This is, this is about the size of a hair, as Ben pointed out. There you're getting thinner than a hair, but it's not really very fine. Let me point out another thing that you may have seen. This was a big fuss um, a couple of weeks ago, or now two months ago, in science. Um, one of the biggest journals that we got, where a group came up with some parallel, parallel technique, where they basically take a bucket full of this chemical I talked about, it's photoresist, that's how we call it, and then they illuminate it with different pictures, so to speak, from different directions, and at the end, magically, you get out of three-dimensional structure. Got a lot of attention, but if you look at it, it's actually neither very fine. It's beyond larger than 100 microns, and it's also not very fast. It's about 10,000 of these volume elements per second that are printed there. So um, yes, it's slow in a way what we are doing, but it's the fastest almost that is around. And perhaps we can chat about this a bit later. These are only published results in the lab. They're now going up here, and I think in a few years' time, we will go out of this picture here in terms of the speed, and this will make a tremendous difference. Maybe we can chat about this a little later on. If you want to have sub-micron feature sizes, for example, for optical applications or for some bio-applications, you want that, basically there is only one technology out there at the moment, and that is this laser writing that I've talked about. There is no alternative. So to give you a flavor of what can be done, I have a couple of examples here. Not all of these are from my group, intentionally, to show you that also other people can use this instrumentation. Of course, I show you nanostripe 
users here. This is an example from Harald Gieson's group from Stuttgart in Germany. And what they did is they basically printed miniature versions of your uh, camera lens that you have on the startup camera. Um, and that is composed of not only one lens, but in this case, three lenses to make the quality of the image better. The only thing is that this is about the diameter of your hair, the entire lens. And you can put this onto small spots. And it's a fairly high quality, I should say, if you want to do anything in optics that is reasonable, the surfaces have to be very smooth, such that the light is not scattered. So with this technology, you get down to about five nanometers roughness. Root mean squared for the experts to quantify that really. So it's a fairly smooth surface, not quite atomically smooth, but not too far away from that either. Why would anybody want such a small lens? Well, this reminds me to say that you can do this printing on pretty much anything you can come up with. You can 3D print literally on anything. And here, Eason has printed this on a small optical fiber. And the motivation for that was that there's a company trying to put this into endoscopic applications where you put a small needle into the body, but you still want to see what's going on there. And then this small objective lens, again, this is about the diameter of, of a hair that allows you to do microscopy inside of the body using an endoscope. And another example here that I mainly show you because I believe this is going to be uh, going to, into mass applications in the next few years. This is a so-called invisibility cloak. I don't want to get into this very deep. Uh, what it does basically is it makes contacts, electrical contacts, invisible. Why would anybody want to do this? Because the contacts are on all solar cells that are on our roof, and they shadow part of the usable area. And in that sense, they reduce the efficiency that the solar cell would have. So what this device aims at, it is that it aims at guiding or refracting, we say, the light at this interface such that the light never, regardless of the incident direction or polarization or color of the light, that it never hits the metal contact, but is always distributed between uh, the metal wires here. That increases the solar cell efficiency by 10 to 20 percent which is a major thing. The, the problem was we, we and others could design this years ago, but optics was for a long time restricted to spherical surfaces because these could easily be made. Now with this technology, we make any surface with any shape. It doesn't really make a difference. It's just a different file that we feed into this instrument. We can make wheelchair surfaces like this here that you need, again, that the light is refracted at this interface. Before I forget this, this is out of a class that some people refer to as two and a half dimensional structures. It's not really fully three dimensional. It has no porosity to it or so. And this can be stacked. So what you can do is you can make a master using this laser writing technology I talked about, and then you use this master in the sense of a stamp and you replicate thousands or millions of times. And that's now going into industry really. The 3D nanoprinters I talked about are now being bought by industry to stamp, as I called it, micro-optics for your mobile phone. They're going to be very sophisticated micro-optics in future mobile phones or also to print very particular optics for headlights and cars. Amazingly, they have got very sophisticated too. And I believe this is something where in the next two, three, four years you might own some product that is made by this kind of 3D laser nanoprinting. And just to come back to this cloaking thing, if you see it or you don't uh, with your own eyes, um, here you've got the metal wire. 
that's a silver wire on a silicon cell, and here or here you do not see it. Must trust me that there is actually the wire still underneath, but you don't see it. It looks entirely black in this region, and that's a good thing for solar cells because it means it absorbs the light and the efficiency has gotten larger. This is a more weird example by Christian Bose Group from Karlsruhe, and, and they call it photonic wireholes. And that's a problem that occurred in electronics years ago already. You make these fancy computer chips, but at the end of the day, you must connect the chip to the outside world, to some housing or so. And in electronics, this is done by very thin wires that are called wire bonds. And here the idea is to do something similar in optics. And that's a major issue in optics. You have put a lot of work into making an optical chip. But then you have to connect it to the outside world. And people are building gigantic machines to align different pieces with some micron precision. They do online controls to monitor this. There's a huge business by itself. You can get rid of all of this instrumentation just by looking at the structure with a camera and then taking this technology that I worked out and write a polymer. It's like a plexiglass. It's not plexiglass, but it looks like plexiglass wavelight here that guides the light from here to here, in this case the silicon chip, like is also being investigated here in Sydney, very beautiful chips are being made. And this works with very high reproducibility and very high coupling efficiency, that's what engineers really care about. And the idea is to bring this also to the next generation of optical chips. In electronics, years ago, uh, the industry has made a transition from a single layer in your computer chip to many, many different layers in state-of-the-art computer chips. In optics, at the moment, it's mainly restricted to one plane, but the trend will be the same. There are different active planes of optics above each other, but then you need some technology that allows you to connect these different planes by light. And these are some of the envisioned elements that allow you to shape the different modes, as they are called, of these devices. Just weird uh, freeform surfaces, and again, the roughness of these has to be on the order of a few nanometers, otherwise they would uh, maybe scatter the light. There's another funny example um, in a journal edited by Ben Engelman, that's why I picked, of course, this example here, APL Photonics. It's uh, worked together with Wolfram Pernis. We call it an Alphorn coupler because it looks like an Alphorn. And the idea is that for testing in the lab, you have the same issue. You want to connect to a small, sophisticated chip you have made. And that's not so easy, actually, to couple into the waveguide. And here we have a combination of a lens. You've seen that before. And then it couples it into this guide, into this hose of light, this waveguide structure, and goes onto a chip. And just to make clear that it's not that we have worked on this one device and then after days and days we got one that worked. No, you can make this in masses. This is actually a matter of a minute or so to make one of these Alphorn couplers and it's become a totally unproducible technology. Maybe for scientists, um, I have an example here that um, is a bit more bizarre. This is uh, together with my uh, colleague, Wolfhegel at Karlsruhe. And uh, they, as many others, are using scanning tunneling microscopes, very, basically a very sharp needle of a metal. And by using the quantum, mechanic, quantum mechanical tunneling effect, you can get atomic resolution of surfaces. What you can also do is by injecting such an electrical current into a surface or into a single molecule sitting onto a surface, you can get light emission electrically induced from a single molecule. 
This is not new, this has been done before, but it's really a pain in the neck to collect that little light that is emitted by a single molecule because you have this tip in the way, and then people have taken high-end microscope lenses, align them at low temperatures under ultra-high vacuum conditions. It's really an awful procedure. And what we have done here is something very simple. We have gotten rid of all of this and printed this parabolic mirror that you see upside down. It's metalized, so it's a metal mirror. And if the light gets inside, it's basically fed directly into an optical fiber. This thing sits on an optical fiber. And then the light is guided out here if you want directly to your spectrometer to do the experiment. And the cute thing is, in this case, we have also printed the needle, the scanning kind of microscope tip here directly by the same technology. This thing gives you atomic resolution. And they are totally excited about this because now they're getting orders of magnitude more light out. You can imagine that you do not get so much light from a single molecule excited by tiny electrons. Uh, but now this can become uh, a routine tool. This is my last example in this tool uh, that I want to have with you here. Um, and this is, uh, I find it cute because here we are printing with state-of-the-art 3D laser printers, the next generation of 3D laser printers. Uh, so what we have been doing so far is maybe using a single laser beam, a single laser focus to write structures as I have described. And it's quite an obvious idea to say why stop with a single beam, why not take 3 by 3 or 10 by 10 laser foci and then increase the speed correspondingly. And it's known how to do these things, you just have to get a phase mask, it's, it's kind of a sophisticated grading. You see it here on a macroscopic scale being held. And you can see the result here. We have generated an array three by three of laser spots, and we're going to use all of them at the same time to do the writing. And um, if we zoom into this picture, you see uh, some structure. I will zoom further. This also reminds me to say that there's always some process involved that we call stitching. So as in any light microscope, we're basically losing a light microscope in reverse, you have a limited field of view, you don't see the entire world, but only a certain area. Under high-end focusing conditions, that is roughly a diameter of 300 microns that you see. So if you want to write structures that are larger than this value, a lot of them you have to stitch, you have to move your sample. And you see some of the stitching here, which is not a problem. If you zoom further, you see a fairly sophisticated face mask here with these pixels of 2 microns by 2 microns and fairly steep edges. And this thing really works like a charm with the required precision. And if you have a good eye, you will see that this focus is a bit dimmer than the others. But that's intentional because we are pre-compensating our that we have at other points already. This works pretty nicely. But you might argue, come on, Martin, this is very, very simple. You're writing just one plexiglass-like material. These polymers is only one material. Many devices that you hold in your hands, look at your mobile phone, it's comp composed of, I would guess, 100 materials or more. You need many different properties to be able to 3D print anything. So how are we doing in this regard? Well, first of all, um, it helps to open up existing technology. This is what you see if you open up your inkjet printer. You see that there are three colors and blacks, so they're different cartridges. And by that, uh, different colors are being generated. And an idea we had amazingly only one or two years ago is to do the same thing for the purpose of this 3D laser printing. 
do what I said, but then be able to automatically exchange these liquids I talked about and in that fashion get different uh, materials. And that's uh, the trivial part about it. So we have little bottles here, flasks, in which the chemicals are, just to show you. These are like this tall here. They can be controlled and pressurized and out comes the liquid at this part. The fancy thing is something much different. And that is you have to build a microfluidic chamber under quite extreme conditions. So this shows you one of these microscope lenses. The light comes out here, here's the focus I discussed a lot. And the first thing you must appreciate is that you have you do not have much space to move up. This microscope lens is damn close to the next surface here, so you can at most move it by 100 microns. So the height of your chamber cannot be more than about the thickness of a hair. So you have to push all the liquids through a fairly narrow channel. Well, the big deal, you would say that take a large pressure and you will get it through. That's true. But a large pressure will also destroy these glass uh, windows that we have here. And the thickness of those is very carefully chosen to correct certain aberrations in the focus. There's no flexibility in this. And at the beginning, it was clear to me whether there would be any, any compromise. Uh, we got explosions of these glass windows, etc. But at the end, it worked quite nicely. This is just to show you how things like that look like. Um, you take this in your hand, stick it into a commercial 3D laser nanoprinter, and this is a result. These are fluorescent images. These are more or less two colors that you see here. Um, and we have printed five layers in this case of these weird patterns, and they are composed of four different colors. We have taken semiconductor quantum dots mixed into these polymers and dye molecules. So we have green, blue, red, and yellow, what you see here. Four materials, then we have one material that kind of forms the backbone. It's just a stabilizing grid in three dimensions to hold all these patterns. That's our material number five. And even all the chemicals I talked about for the development, for the washing out of the material, are integrated in this case. This is the same thing, just represented differently to convince you that what we wanted to print, that's the target here, and what we got is fairly, fairly close. Uh, so now you can scale this up to 10 or 20 materials, that's not an issue at all. We can automate this and have many different materials in one architecture. In case you wonder what is this here, why did we do this, we just briefly explain this. This is a collaboration we are having with Zeiss in Germany. And the idea is to perhaps go to next generation three-dimensional security features. If you find that weird, uh, if you look at some German passport, I don't know how it is in Australia, if you take a German passport, state of last year, it has tons and tons of security features on it, many of which are emitting colors. These colors, you only see this yellow and this red if you put it under a UV lamp, which um, policemen can do for you, um, to check. And actually, all the pages are different. Um, you see the Brandenburger Tor here, all these page numbers, they're all fluorescent colors. The Euro banknotes have that for many years already. But you know, it's a race. There is one community of people that are trying to protect goods. And there's another community, often referred to as criminals, who are trying to <laughs> fake these things to make money. And it's a race. I mean, they are getting better, the criminals. And so the other side has to get better, too. You want to use the latest key of technology. So here the idea was, let's use 3D laser nanoprinting. And that's just what you've seen before. The idea is to not only have one layer of color submitting colors, but have different layers just to make it more secure. 
And if you think that's very difficult to read out, actually to read out, it's a mechanism very close to the laser scan you have at all um, cashiers. Um, when you go and pay in the supermarket, you also have this device that scans the laser. This is not much more difficult than that to extend that uh, to these uh, things here. That's, I guess, why size is also excited about that. Let me show you an example for when you need more materials, and perhaps that's uh, also something that Professor Hallert-Zweikart is interested in. We've been doing this for many years. I'll show you one example. It's a structure composed of three different materials, three different polymers. But that is not so interesting. We need these polymers just as an aid to then get different surface functionalizations on these surfaces. These are proteins that are coated on a molecular thickness level onto these bars that you see here. You have a scale bar here. And these are extracellular matrix proteins, the purpose of which is to kind of glue cells of different type to different pieces in this scaffold. So in this case, we have what we labeled here in red. That's one functionalization of the surface, and that's yet another one. And the purpose is that we can make certain cells attach here and other types of cells attach here. And then if you think a little bit further, that will allow you to assemble big things, just to show you that we are sometimes also measuring things, really. You can look at these cells in a fluorescence uh, laser scanning microscope. These are just some raw data. But I would rather take this uh, version here. On the right hand side, you see data. So here, these epithelial cells, it's like skin cells, um, they are producibly attached only to these pinkish parts that are uh, functionalized with laminin, whereas this other type of cells called fibroblasts attach to the other parts. And again, the idea is if you now make a more complex structure, you can make one type of cell attached in a certain position, another type of cell in yet another position. So you kind of help cells to grow in a particular manner. And our treatment council in this cluster of accidents that Ben uh, mentioned at the beginning is to reconstruct a functioning human retina along these uh, lines, which is a fairly complex system, but it's a well-defined system. There's also clear motivation why we're going to do this. Eventually, not in the next 10 years, but eventually you could make blind people see again, which I find motivating. Another approach it is to do something much simpler. If you find that too complicated, taking all these different cartridges or different inks, take one ink, one liquid, but find a mechanism that we can change something during that laser writing, and due to that change, we get different material properties out. And in this case, what we did is very simple. We just changed the laser power during the writing. And when changing the laser power by a factor of two or three, you can get radically different properties. Let me illustrate that here with this movie. In the beginning, you could see that there are kind of two beams. So one part has been written with a low power, the adjacent part with a much higher power. And this acts like a bimetal beam, except it's not a metal, it's a polymer structure, it's hydrogel to be precise. If you care about the chemistry, it's here at the bottom. You carefully have to uh, choose the fraction of these uh, <coughs> chemicals here. And the end result is that you get what some people call four-dimensional structures. It's a 3D structure, but you can activate it. You can change it by some external stimulus. It does something in time. So time is kind of the additional dimension. And this works in water, so you can use this to tickle cells if you want to. You can use it to uh, play with um, um, 
with membranes or stuff like that. And the beautiful thing is you can also activate it by light. What you see on the right hand side is a real-time movie. It's not sped up. This is real-time. Just by focusing a laser, you can move things and manipulate whatever you want to. And that I find quite uh, interesting. If you think this is the only device we ever made, this is to convince you that this is quite unreducible. Small arrays of these lamellas that we have made, and they all act in the same manner. This is got really a technology. The very last example, if then give me two minutes or so, is going to this meta-material idea of meta-inks. And uh, it, um, again, I'd like to start with opening your inkjet printer. So you have these three colors and black in there. I don't know whether you ever wondered how they actually do it. How do they make different colors out of these four cartridges? So at the end of the day, out of three colors and the black, you get thousands of different colors. But this thing can actually only print either yellow or red or blue. So how do they do it? Um, let me show this for this transition. And they do it by a mechanism called dithering, and I call it metamaterials. So the idea is you have these two colors here, and then you arrange them in a checkerboard manner, and you make the checkerboard finer and finer, and at some point you can't resolve this checkerboard anymore, and out of the merger of blue and yellow, you're going to see green. Actually, this thing can only spot three colors, but it looks as if you have thousands of colors on the piece of paper. And the same idea we are using uh, here now also. We may only be able to 3D print one material or two or three, but I find it difficult to imagine that at the end we will have thousands of different cartridges in such an instrument. So we somehow have to find a way to get many different properties with just a few ingredient materials. And the idea is to print 3D print uh, artificial materials. And only one example, I picked a crazy example intentionally to make clear that we do not necessarily get properties that are in between the properties of the material we put in. So this example is about a material that expands upon pressurizing it. This should surprise you. So if you take any material that you choose and you exert a hydrostatic pressure by a gas or by a liquid to it, it basically means that all forces point inwards, so it must shrink. We say the compressibility is positive. The volume decreases, it shrinks. And just to make sure I'm not fooling you here with something trivial, if you take a sponge, a porous structure, it will react the same way. You pressurize it and it shrinks. And in fact, I told that to my students many, many times that for thermodynamic reasons and energetic reasons, this is fundamentally forbidden that the opposite happens, that you pressurize something and it increases in volume. I'm not going to say this anymore because um, there are weird structures that behave like that that I want to show you. These are like crystals, but artificial crystals. Looks harmless. It's a little stack of cubes connected by these funny arms. And one of these cubes looks like that. Still not very special. If you open it up on the computer, you see that the special thing is that we have a very thin membrane. Micron or submicron in thickness is membrane. And now comes to the trick. If the pressure on the outside is larger, becomes larger than the inside, then this little membrane is going to walk inwards. Right? So that's the normal status, and then you blow into it like blowing into a balloon, and it will do this. And as a result, this arm is moving outwards. That's the trick. 
So then the distance between adjacent cubes is going to increase as a result, the effective volume of this material will increase as you pressurize it, uh, illustrated here once again, just to show you that there's can be very weird behavior. This is an electron micrograph of one of the structures that we have made. And the last result I want to show you is just this animation here. Um, you just see it under a microscope. This is 50 microns or so, so half the picture is the thickness of a hair. And you see when the pressure is high, the structure is large. It does exactly the opposite of the ordinary material uh, behaves. And it's also does something that was believed to be impossible until a few years ago, and that's the kick I get out of this. You can make many materials with awkward properties that nature hasn't seen so far, and that may prove to be very useful. If you care about that, we have long reviews with hundreds of examples like that uh, in the meantime. Before I totally stop talking, I would like to acknowledge many co-workers. I've only put a couple of people from my group just recently involved and tons and tons of collaborators from different countries. Almost perhaps I acknowledge um, that Australia has stolen my friend Christopher Barnacolik from Germany and uh, he's now at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, but we're still collaborating heavily on that. And many other people from chemistry, from biology, doing things with mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. That's one of the beauties in this field of nanoscience that people have gotten together really. And with this, I should like to end. Thank you very much. So now we'll move swiftly on to the conversation. So I'll ask my colleague, Professor Hala Srika, to um, lead a conversation again. Hold your questions until the end of this session, um, and there'll be time. Well, thank you very much, Martin, for this amazing presentation. What a fascinating presentation of the work you're doing. You presented to us amazing uh, abilities to come up with various materials and I think if we can, I'm sure the audience will be interested in hearing more and exploring more about the ability of this technology that you presented to us and what it can do. So my own interest is in reproducing um, natural uh, or uh, nanoarchitectural material similar to natural structure, just like human tissues. Now, we know you presented us with this uh, multi-photon lithography, 3D printing of devices of various materials, which is amazing. I have to tell you, we spent all of December, January and February writing uh, a grant for the Australian government in the hope that by November they tell us it's successful to obtain one of these machines here in Australia because I know it will change the life of many of my group who are very much interested in the 3D printing but also Australia in general. So uh, the secret of the technology as I see it is really by combining these multi-photon um, uh, powers, if you like, of different powers, concentrating them into a single photon with much, much powerful uh, system, far greater powerful system. And what this will allow you then is to uh, go down to the lab level, manufacture these diverse materials for various applications that can range from medicine, electronics, uh, uh, manufacturing, and the list goes on. So 3D printing technology at the nanoscale level is the most sophisticated technology known to man, particularly in the medical devices. And this is really where I would like 
to being in the medical field and the biomedical field, field, but I'd like to probably concentrate this discussion on, you know, how the application of this technology in the medical field. So, um, what I'm really interested in is we can use multi-photon to mimic tissue structures, but then what are the challenges? I'd like to hear from you because every technology has its promises and challenges. We know that human tissue is not easy to replicate. It's a very, very complex structure, and you gave us examples of that. But what's important is if we are trying to make a human tissue, we obviously want large tissues, right? So what I would like to see is how do you foresee this technology printing larger objects? We know the kidney, for instance, around 11 centimeter. Heart is large. How do you foresee this technology printing larger ob uh, objects for us, if we can just elaborate on that? Yeah, let's do that before maybe we can come back to uh, other challenges that I understand. What I didn't say very clearly is what the speed actually is of this spot of light, of this focus in the focal plane. In commercial instruments, you can go up to 10 or 20 centimeters per second. So a decent speed, considering how small the voxel is, that corresponds to this couple of million voxels that we've got per second. So the speed is like this. It's, I would say, a fairly large speed. And what we do in the lab is faster. We can go to more than half a meter per second or so in the meantime. And I think this will go, um, my guess would be, you can go to a few meters per second. So there may be one order of magnitude increase in the speed just by scanning this focus faster. Um, I guess there will be another order of magnitude by instead of using one laser focus, use arrays of laser foci, which doesn't always work, but for particular structures you can do that. Then we have close to two orders of magnitude improvement. Um, but we have to be careful, this sounds a lot, a hundred times faster. The nasty thing of three dimensions is you have to take the care of all dimensions. So if you want to make something larger by a factor of 10 in one dimension, larger by a factor of 10 in the other, and a factor of 10 in the third, it's a factor of 1,000 you need. So to get a factor of 10 larger in all dimensions, we have to get a factor of 1,000 faster. Uh, mentioned size, and size for us is kind of the same problem as speed, because there is no fundamental problem in making things larger. That's easy for us, but it takes a lot of patience at the moment, and sometimes too much patience. For some very sophisticated structures, we may need a couple of hours for 3D printing. If you then ask the student to do something that has 10 times larger dimension, takes a thousand times longer time, this would take you days and days, if not a year, to 3D print that thing and just don't do that. So these advances are desperately needed for many things. And apart from just brute force making these things faster, there are also ideas, new ideas out there, how we could get yet much larger speed advances. We have some ideas that I guess can give us an advantage of three to four orders of magnitude up to 10,000 times faster to compare to what we can do today. But we have to wait for that. That's just upcoming because very often it's not just physics, it's not just a physics challenge. Very often this is connected to challenges for chemists to synthesize other molecules that can do these things. Actually, I couldn't do anything without my chemistry friends. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's very good that you touched on the speed as well, which I was going to end the cost, right? Because you mentioned industrial applications and scaling up with the industry. And that's the first thing any company would say to you, well, how much is going to cost you to print it? And if it's really large, 
you know, even if you speed up, you know, you, you have the science and nobody better than Germans in really coming up with technologies and they can come up with many, many laser printings and then that's the speed. But then the cost, can you see the cost going down in the near future for industry application? This? Well, as I briefly mentioned, industry is already uh, starting to use this in the sense of making a master and then stamping it. For them, that's okay at the moment because you can spend some days even on making one master and then you can use it for months to, to replicate structures, but without that technology, you perhaps could never make that master. So that is already reality. Uh, for other applications in industry, uh, people are willing to wait if you want to build a sophisticated endoscope. Um, for medical purposes, it may be okay that it costs hundreds of euros to make one device if it helps people um, in their health. But there are many other applications where it's totally not acceptable the speed that they have today. Let me take a trivial example. If I were to print, 3D print the glasses, say they have fallen down, they have broken, I want to 3D print the glasses. There's no fundamental problem in doing this. We can get sufficiently smooth surfaces, but printing a glass like that would take us a month, I'm guessing. This is a fairly large volume, it's large footprint, this is totally unacceptable. This would be a waste of money to do it like that. But if we get faster by a factor of 1,000, this is getting acceptable, then we may be able to 3D print a replacement glass or scale of a minute or so. The company is actually doing specifically that, but tricks that are not general purpose 3D printing instruments, they think they can sell that. And it makes a lot of sense, because if you look at these glasses, they're fairly sophisticated. These are far from spherical surfaces. They have weird surfaces, and sometimes you have this, how do you call it in English, this barrier, focal length lenses. They're actually very complicated shapes, and it's very expensive to make them. They cost, if you buy them today, hundreds of, of euros easily. And you could really print all of that stuff eventually, but that will be a speed uh, improvement that is needed. Wonderful. So another challenge, I think, we talked about the science, the cost is the chemical. We swim in chemistry in our body, right? So the chemical structures are really very, very hard to replicate. You have touched on them in your presentation with the advanced science advanced paper with the microfluidics and using uh, the uh, confocal. You, you were able to go to heterogeneity with around 10 microns, right? But if we look at the cellular so you have complexity in sounds and tissues. If you look at the cellular level, really we have multiple cell types arranged in such a hierarchically complex structures to produce what we want them to produce. So how you can how can you see that this 3D printing at the nano level can actually replicate this sort of complexity cellular level? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge challenge. We can only do so much today. As I briefly alluded to, you have to, first of all, coat surfaces specifically with certain molecules that cells will like that surface, that they will attach to it. We need different proteins on different surfaces. And this sounds so easy to have a little bit of protein coating here, a little bit there. If this is taking place on a micron level, that's a major act 
to get that going. And this will go a couple of years. We're getting better, and others are also getting better. We all are getting better at this, but it's uh, still not uh, good enough at the moment. And there are also things that it makes a huge difference for a cell, whether a surface is homogeneously coated with some coating, for example, or whether it comes in small spots of some tens of nanometers that have some spacing, the cell reacts differently to that. So to make things like that, we can use perhaps these uh, stimulated emission depletion, these dead tricks, to make smaller functionalizations on surfaces to really be a designer for the cells. Uh, but there are many more challenges in this game. I mean, if you take this idea of growing some functioning organ like the retina in the scaffold, you may very likely want to get rid of that scaffold at the end of the day. You don't want to have that forever there. Uh, actually getting rid of these materials is a lot more difficult than it sounds. Until two or three years ago, there was no decent way at all to get rid of them. You had to burn them away, literally speaking, otherwise they wouldn't go. Um, but we have learned to get um, materials that can be cleaved by chemical means, and now we're going in the direction that they can also be cleaved in a biological context, that you can get rid of them without killing the cells that have grown in there. And that's not so easy, actually. Uh, but this will be what you eventually have to do, and then we have to also learn to contact to these things. I mean, you have maybe some functioning organotypic system, but then how do you know it functions? You have to somehow contact to it. Everything is three-dimensional. You have to learn how to get electrical contacts in three dimensions. There are tons of challenges there. Yeah, and I think you alluded to my next question, which I know you elegantly are working on trying to replicate the retina and there is um, advancements in the field. So my question here is that has complied, and we addressed that question before. But so what, what portion of the retina are you trying to replicate? And you rightly indicated, I mean, this is a complex tissue. You have light coming through retina, going back to the cons and rocks, and then activates the nerves. And this is really, really a challenging thing to do. So how you started working on that. So maybe if you please just give us some ideas on how far yeah. along it is. Yeah, I mean, it composes things like the photoreceptors down to the nerves that generate electrical signals that you would need to implant it if that should happen in 20 years' time or whatever. Um, what you can do, and what my biology friends are doing, and it always sounds like I am doing this, um, I consider myself as an overqualified technician in these collaborations, but I enjoy doing that. So what my friends in biology do is they take so-called organoids, um, which are stem cells that have already developed in the direction of a functioning organ. You hear physicists talking about <coughs> biology, and people have seen little grains, it looks like a little grain, but it's not really further developing. Things have seen organoids that look like an eyeball that wants to develop, but it's not really an eye yet, and it's not going anywhere. But the idea is if you can help the cells, they already want to grow an eyeball. If you help them by some scaffolding, then perhaps they might do it by themselves. And, and then we don't have to do all that job of connecting these things. This would be awful. So that's why we are not, at least in council, we're not going in the direction of 3D printing cells in the sense of 3D printing a liver by literally putting cell by cell and building up a liver or whatever, because we believe you can't realize really complex uh, architectures along these lines. Yeah. 
So just to elaborate on probably mine, I don't know if the audience here are. So this is the ability of the stem cells. I've really heard of stem cells being in a dish in the lab and be able to direct them to different organs in the lab or, you know, a miniature stuff that you can... And they're by no means are organs. They're just tiny little things. That, yeah. In fact, we, our group, are working on that and hopefully within two months we get something out of this. But there's still the challenge, as you just said, how do we get them all to interact with each other, with the nerves, with the cells, and then become the others. And so I'm just saying to relate to the audience the complexity of this because there is a lot of questions we come to when are we going to go to humans. So there is the cellular level, but then we come to the tissue level. There is another complexity there with the tissue level where you have, like the heart, it combines with all sorts of chambers, nerves, blood, and you need them all to work together to become a tissue, functional tissue, if we like. And we're, how far are we from making a functional tissue? <laughs> Look, honestly, we're very far from that. When we're talking about these things, you shouldn't expect that to hit the market or the yeah. hospital in the next five years. Actually, I would be happy if the things that we are doing uh, are going so far in 10 years that medical doctors start to get interested in these things. For applying that, that, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, I'm not sure. I mean, I've shown examples in my talk. Some things take 30 years easily, um, but still I find it worth working on that. And the other thing, I'm going to switch to my own area of work, which is we're trying to develop synthetic material to build large bone defects, and we discussed that previously. So here we've developed synthetic material, ceramic, for instance. Ceramic is brittle. But if we can print these materials down from the nano level, so your bone structure is quite hierarchical, goes down from the nano level to the macro level. And that's why to this day nobody can produce a material, synthetic material, that can build large bone defects under load because it is such a hierarchical structure that is so difficult to replicate in the lab. And hopefully, with the use of the nanoscribe or the technology that Professor Wagner just presented to us, not only we can probably print our ceramic syllabus down from the nano to the macro level, but another important aspect that we can glean from that is understand the fundamental biology that dictates what's happening with the cells, because you related to that in the topography, in the changes of the topography. Because if you have a material that has different architecture or topography, even at the nano level, that the cells can detect, that will dictate what sort of tissue is formed. So this will also give us a beautiful understanding of the biology that dictates how the cells behave at that nano level. So maybe if we can talk about that in terms. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that took me a long time to appreciate that that these the biologists that I talk to have deep down in their heart, they don't care about engineering things in the sense that I think about it. They care about understanding nature. They want to understand life, and in the sense you describe, this helps them to understand life because they can, in a controlled manner, change parameters, see whether the interaction between cells is a mechanical one or a chemical one or whatever. You can change things and then try to make sense out of it why cells do what they do. Um, so they just want to understand that we kind of push them to 
bring this into an engineering kind of sense. Yeah, and, and just elaborating on that, we all knew in the field that all is hierarchical structure, everybody knew that. And until recently, people found the mechanism, how does it work, using the technology that, you know, uh, advanced microscopy technology, and scientists sitting here, these discoveries or these observations can get you science paper and nature paper. So we're embarking using this technology to try and understand more of what's happening at that hierarchical structure. Now, um, if I may add, yeah. the cool thing is that Physicists and engineers are also now stealing these ideas from biology and we are making these artificial materials, these metamaterials, inspired by what is happening in a bone, for example. Some of the materials that will give another talk tomorrow are actually inspired by that bone is a highly unusual material. You can't explain it by the things you learn in a mechanical engineering course, really, by Cauchy elasticity. It's something really complicated going beyond uh, normal materials. And we can steal that and make use of it in, in an engineering sense. Can you give us an example other than bone? Maybe not that you're really interested in bone. From biology? Yeah. I'm a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know any other really. Do you? Heart, for instance, you know, the muscles, the contraction. Ah, but that's, that's yes. an active. That's right. <laughs> wow. Bone is active. Yeah, thank you. Everybody thought bone yeah, is dead. Bone is alive. No, it's not. No. But that's because, thanks to the Germans for discovering the equipment that allows us to actually process the bone tissue in the lab now without taking the calcium or the hard tissue, you know, the hard stuff that makes bone like a rock, that we, in the 80s, now we understand that bone is life. It has vascular tissue, it has neural tissue, and to replicate bone, you need to address all of that. Muscles, soft tissue, all of that stuff. So, yes. Every tissue, and it's the amazing thing that we need to highlight really is the importance of all of us working together. Physicists, engineers, um, the chemists, anybody, all working together to develop a product for the human, you know. Sorry? Philosophers, yes, we talked about that. Do you want to talk about the philosophers, maybe? Yes. The importance of that? My experience is it, it takes time. I mean, you can't put the biologists and physicists in a room and let them stay there for a week and expect anything decent to happen. I mean, you have to, uh, you have to discuss this, and for us, this took literally years. Uh, you also have to develop some sort of a human contact to the, the yeah. scientist friend. I mean, it's not just entirely business. You have to trust the other person if you want to spend um, your scientific life with another person. Good, okay. Well, look, let's thank Professor Martin Pegner and Professor Hollis Rickett for an amazing journey. So, so let me just spend a few minutes trying to wrap up. Um, I mean, that was truly breathtaking. I um, think that was uh, inspiring to give you a flavour of what's possible, what's coming here at the University of Sydney in particular. So Sydney Nano has now been uh, running for a few years. We've launched our grand challenge uh, projects that aim at discovering the groundbreaking solutions to the world's most significant challenges on a social, economic and scientific level. You can read about them on our website. This event represents an important step in our evolution as we engage 
with the community, that is you. We have strong partnerships with industry and research institutions in Australia and across the world. Our facilities are open for collaboration with entrepreneurial companies seeking dynamic translation of fundamental research. But we want you, we want the broader community to be part of our journey. So please connect with us, reach out to us, sign up for our newsletter. Um, we plan a whole series of outreach events over the next um, couple of years. Um, for example, within the next 12 months, we will have an open day. So I encourage you to follow up um, and stay tuned for that. So we're at the beginning of a revolution that will be transformative this century as the digital revolution was in the past. And I hope you will embark with us on that journey. As I said, please subscribe to our newsletters and connect through social media if you want to stay in touch. Let me just wrap up by thanking um, Sydney Ideas, Anna Burns in particular, who's been um, a joy to work with. I want to thank the Sydney Nano team um, who are here today, who have helped put this together. I want to thank Martin, who's uh, flown all the way out from Germany and Halle for an amazing event. Please uh, join me in um, a warm round of applause for this amazing event. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.